Amen. Thank you, Emily. Well, good morning. Welcome to Salem Chapel. Uh, if you're new with us, let me introduce myself. My name is Johnny Pereira. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. Uh, it's good to be back up here. I've been uh, taking time off this summer. Every summer, the elders give me uh, time away, and I'm very grateful for it. And uh, it's been good to be away. It's been good to sit here under um, our own other pastoral staff who have opened up God's word and they've done a tremendous job. It's been good to have some of my friends from other places in the country come and speak. Uh, But at the same time, man, I've missed being up here and it's good to be up here. And I'm glad that you're with us, whether you're in this room, whether you're watching us online. Uh, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 132. We're going to get right into it this morning. Uh, If you're brand new with us, we've been in a series this entire summer entitled Look Up, walking through the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, So the Psalms of Ascent, I'll explain what those are here in a moment because I don't want to take for granted that some of you uh, or all of you know what the Psalms of Ascent were for and and why they're called that. But they start in Psalm 120 and they go all the way through Psalm 134. So this morning we're in Psalm 132, next week 133, and the following week we'll close out the series in Psalm 134. But as we look at uh, these Psalms of Ascent, here's what they were. They were songs the people of Israel sang as they made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. So Jewish people were were required, uh, required may be a strong word, but they were told by the Lord to worship him in the temple. And so they would make this pilgrimage three times a year. They would do it once in the spring for the feast of the Passover. They would do it uh, once in the fall uh, for uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and I skipped one. They do it at the Feast of Pentecost in the summer. So three times a year, they make this journey from wherever they are to Jerusalem to worship the Lord all together. And, and so one of the things that we know is you have captivities taking place, you have people being displaced, and, and while the temple existed, they were to make this pilgrimage three times a year. And this pilgrimage was, it was just not something like you did this morning where you got in your car and you drove here to Salem Chapel or, or, or you, 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 know, you maybe got out of your pajamas and brushed your teeth before you're wash, watching right now at home. I have no idea. But whatever you did to get you here is a little bit different than that. Coming many, many miles, some hundreds of miles, some shorter than that, but all by foot. In fact, when I was in Israel, one of the things that shocked me was is how quickly, once you got out of the city of Jerusalem, how quickly you ran into desert. In fact, I took a picture. This is, this is not too far out of the city of Jerusalem. This was the terrain that people would have been walking in to get to Jerusalem where the temple was. So, so not ex- exactly a stroll in the park or the greenway or whatever you like to do. Uh, This was a treacherous journey. This was a journey that um, was not an easy journey. It was a dangerous journey. And so these songs that they sang were meant to encourage them as they made this journey towards Jerusalem. Now, one of the things you also need to understand is Jerusalem is the highest, is the city of highest elevation in Israel. So the majority of the journey was going uphill, right? So it makes it even more difficult. And so as they're making this journey, singing these songs to remind them of God's faithfulness, 
to remind them of what God has already done in their past, to remind them and to set their hearts on what they were about to do when they gathered together with the other people of Israel from all different areas of Israel and beyond to worship the Lord. That's the purpose of these songs. Now, that was literally what people of Israel did. So what's the significance for us today as we walk through these psalms? Well, the significance for us today is just like they were ascending to Jerusalem, our Christian walks, our walks with the Lord should look like an ascent into spiritual maturity and becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, if you're like me, here's what this journey does not look like. It does not look like here's point A, here's point B, and it's a straight shot upward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, though I should. I don't think anybody's spiritual journey looks like this, straight up. What does it oftentimes look like? You make some progress, some difficult things happen. Maybe you do some things that you didn't desire to do, but unfortunately you did. You take a step backwards. But nevertheless, along that spiritual journey should be an ascent to where we are growing in our spiritual maturity. And so much like they were ascending to their home to worship the Lord, that is what our life looks like. It can oftentimes be difficult. It can oftentimes be treacherous. It can even sometimes be dangerous. It can be, we can encounter things that we weren't expecting. But all the while in our life, we're journeying to a place to commune with the Lord, as we just sang, forever and ever. And so that's the significance, is how do we navigate life on this journey to where we all want to be one day, which is with the Lord forever and ever. And so that's the significance of this series is look up. Just like these songs were to encourage the children of Israel, look up. Don't just concentrate on what you're experiencing today. Look up. Remind yourself where we're headed. The significance is the same for us today. Now, Psalm 132. Here's what you need to understand about Psalm 132. First of all, it's a very difficult song. So, Here's what, here's, what I, here's what I've tried not to do here at Salem Chapel is give the other pastors all the difficult passages to preach and I get to preach the ones that are, you mean, you really gotta be really bad not to hit at least a triple. Uh, I'm not doing that. So uh, Psalm 132, here's what you need to understand. If you read this Psalm and, and maybe you're, you know, if, if you've got some semblance of a knowledge of the Old Testament, you might be able to say, okay, I see what he's saying here. But the majority of us, uh, including myself, when I first read this, I was like, holy cow, this is my first week back after not preaching for eight weeks. And this is the psalm I get to teach. I have no one to blame but myself because I did the cow learning. But nevertheless, we come to Psalm 132. So let me give you some context to this psalm. First of all, it's the longest psalm of ascent. More than twice as long as any other's. That's significant. Um, here's the next thing you need to understand. It's, a, it's speaking about the ascent of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem during the days when David is king. Now, how many of you have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raise your hand. Okay, better yet, better question. I'll get a better idea of the crowd that I'm speaking to this morning. How many of you have never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raise your hand. Okay, hold on, leave them up, leave them up. I wanna see who I'm dealing with. Um, okay, I'm just, pay- leave them up. Okay, the vast majority of you are under 30. <laughs> Not a surprise. Because for me, I'm like, man, that movie, that was like, that was like 10 years ago, right? No, 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 it was like over 30 years ago. Um, so 
if you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have some semblance of what I mean when I say the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if that's your only reference to the Ark of the Covenant, that's why we're doing some context this morning. Because I can promise you it's not stored in a warehouse in D.C. Um, If you haven't seen it, I gave away part of the ending, but it's been 30 years old, so I think I have the right to spoil a movie. But let let me just give you some ideas about the Ark of the Covenant. First of all, this box was approximately 45 inches long. It was 27 inches wide and 27 inches deep, so really not that big. Sometimes we think of this Ark of the Covenant, this massive thing. It was actually a fairly small thing. To give you a context, if you've ever moved, you know those garment moving boxes? If you put it on its side, that's about how big the Ark of the Covenant was. It was constructed of wood. It was overlaid with gold. And then at the top, there was this lid made out of solid gold that was called the mercy seat. And on top of this mercy seat were these two cherubim. I believe the picture's behind me, these two cherubim. And inside of the center of that lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. So that Ark of the Covenant, if you have any idea of the Old Testament, I have time to get into the intricate details of it, but a high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one time where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God with his people. And so that high priest would go and he would make a sacrifice for the sins of Israel and he would sprinkle that blood on top of that mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was very significant to the people of Israel. It was special to the people of Israel. It was value to the people of Israel. It was the most precious thing that they had. Why? Because it literally symbolized that God was with them. And so when we understand that about the Ark of the Covenant, and then we come to Psalm 132, where it's describing literally when David took the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the significance of that is because in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through chapter 7, at one point the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. So Israel had it. Israel goes into a battle with the Philistines. The Philistines win. If you don't know anything about the Philistines, they are literally the arch nemesis of the people of Israel. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant from the people of Israel and they keep it there in the land of the Philistines. And it's literally like, ha we have like your trophy, the thing that you value the most. And so David promises that he's going to get back that ark. And so he goes into battle with the people of the Philistines. He defeats them and he takes this ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. And this is what this psalm is about. Just to give you a little bit of context. So let's start at verse one. Give you plenty of time to get there. So if you're there, say you're there. All right, awesome. Let's look at verse one. It says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured. So I just described a little bit of it. So they're singing this, remember? Lord, would you remember, O Lord, David, and in David's favor, all the hardship he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrata, and we have found it in the fields of Jaar. So that's speaking of that time where David gets the ark, captures it back, 2 Samuel 6, 14 and 15. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So here's another thing you need to understand about David. David always desired to build a temple for the Lord. 
During David's time, there was a tabernacle, there was a tent. It wasn't permanent. And David always desired to build a temple to where that Ark of the Covenant could rest. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, God did not want David to build him a temple. He said, David, you're a man of war, your hands are too bloody but your son will build it. And so David assembles all the supplies, all the resources, all the wood, all the money to build this temple and Solomon builds that temple. But look at what it says. It says, let us go to his dwelling place, verse seven. Let us worship at his footstool, verse eight. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of of your anointed one. Here's the significance of that. Because they're singing this song after this has taken place hundreds of years. Three times a year, remember? Every year, they're making this trek. They do it the first year after David did this. They do it the second year. They do it the 10th year. They do it the 50th year. And as it continues to go on, those memories get less and less. And so they're singing this song to remind them to relive how God delivered Israel, gave David what he desired, allowed Solomon to build the temple, but some of these people never saw that happen. And so they're making a journey to go worship something that physically may no longer exist. Because the Ark of the Covenant, we don't know what happened to it. We don't know when it disappeared. We have no idea. But at some point it did. But yet they still sing this song. Now here's the significance of what we just read. And we'll finish out these verses here in a little bit. But here's the idea that I want you to get today. Because we've been talking all summer about looking up and what it means. But when I read this psalm, here's what I want us to understand. Looking up is choosing to believe the Lord is always. Say that word with me. Say it one more time. The Lord is always trustworthy. This is important. When circumstances seem to prove otherwise. See, it's real easy to believe that the Lord is trustworthy When you prayed something this week and it worked out exactly the way that you wanted, you're like sitting here today and you're like, yes. And I'm so happy for you. I'm literally, I'm not just saying that facetiously. Like I'm excited that you have seen that reality play out in your life. That you prayed something, you've been seeking for something and you are able to realize that the Lord did that. And you are excited, you believe. Maybe some of you believe in a greater way than you ever have before today. That yes, the Lord is trustworthy. He's shown that to me this week. Man, I'm so thankful for that moment in your life. But I've been doing this long enough to know that there's also an amount of people in this room and maybe greater than the amount of people that I just described that aren't experiencing that. See, your circumstances don't seem to attest to what I just said. They actually seem to disprove it. So what do we do in those times? What do we do as the children of Israel that are going and walking this ascent to go worship something that no longer physically is present. We look up believing that the Lord is trustworthy 
even when circumstances seem to prove otherwise. See, the danger in treating the Lord in such a way that, Lord, I'm going to raise my hands, I'm going to sing to you, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray to you, I'm going to give to you financially, I'm going to do all of these things because I need you to come through for me in X. Or God, I'm going to do those things because you did come through me in X. But what happens when circumstances don't seem to be jiving with what you want and you're in one of those situations and you're discouraged, you're disappointed, maybe even depressed because circumstances are proving otherwise what you know to be true. Oh, you know it theologically, I know it theologically, but it's a matter of do I believe it in my reality in this moment? What do you do during those times? Because oftentimes what we do is when God seems to throw us a bone, so to speak, and he works things out the way that we want, man, we're so quick to praise him, we're so quick to say, man, I love Jesus, and when he doesn't, we're so quick to turn away and say, you know what, that God, what he said, what he, what he promised, he would do, what, he, what, he, what I heard maybe in church that he was the type of God or what he did in someone else's life and he doesn't seem to be doing in mine, then I want to have nothing to do with him. And unfortunately, when we're like that, and I can, tempt to be like, I can be tempted to be like that just as much as you, We fall, we fall into the trap of doing what Israel did as well. See, Israel so often viewed the Ark of the Covenant, this thing that symbolizes God's presence, as this talisman, this, this little trinket, magic trinket that if you have it, like you get to do whatever you want and God's gonna make it all happen. And if it's not there with you, then you know, your chances are 50-50 at best. That's how often the children of Israel viewed the ark. I mean, they were literally like, hey, we're going into this battle. Um, these are my words now. Going into this battle. Hey, did anybody bring the ark? Like, like you can forget your, if you forget your sword, if you forget your shoes, good, make sure you bring the ark. Like, like that's how often the children of Israel viewed it. Like, we've got the ark, we're good. But what they were doing is, is they were cheap treating the Lord like a cheap trick that God, you're here to do our bidding. And that's so often the danger when we only allow circumstances to prove that the Lord is trustworthy. Because what happens when circumstances don't? And so often, if we just look at the circumstances, we all would draw the conclusion that God, I'm not so sure that what you say actually is reality. See, the result in living that way, for some of us, we sit here this morning, and we would never share this out loud with anybody, but some of us have a deep-seated anger in our soul this morning. Because theologically, we believe that the Lord is trustworthy, and we believe that the Lord is faithful, but some circumstances have happened, and we're like, God, I know you have the power, and I know you have the ability, but you chose not to to intervene in this situation, and you have allowed me to go through this. And some of you are angry this morning. I've been there. Or maybe it's the flip side. Maybe it's this. Maybe this morning we're living with the deep shame and deep guilt 
because we look at some of the circumstances that we are experiencing right now and we don't so much blame God because we know that our poor choices, I mean, it's like everybody told me that if I made these choices that this would be the result, but I didn't listen. I thought I was the exception. I thought I knew better and I'm right where everyone told me we would be. And so this morning, you don't live necessarily with anger, but you live with deep guilt and shame. And what you're struggling with is is believing that your circumstances that you're experiencing right now are greater than God's grace in your life. And so you're struggling in a different way. You're saying, man, I know theologically that God is trustworthy and that he forgives and he restores, but my circumstances seem to be proving otherwise. See, regardless of where you are and what I just described this morning, we need to approach this psalm and ask this question. How do you, how do I keep looking up when circumstances are wanting to bring me down? If you write one thing down, I want you to write this down. Looking up is a choice. I don't think sometimes we view it that way. Looking up in the way that we describe, choosing to believe that the Lord is trustworthy even when circumstances seem to prove otherwise is a choice. Now I came across this statistic that I thought was interesting. I didn't believe it at first. I was like, oh my goodness. I mean, newsflash, don't believe everything that you read. But I was, I was looking at this statistic. I was like, man, that just seems like way too Way too big of a number, and so I actually did some research of my own and found that literally everyone was giving this number, and you're like, what are you talking about? Well, let me tell you. So researchers, whether that be psychologists or, or um, in marketing or whatever it is, researchers from different fields somehow did some study, I don't know how they did it, and determined that the average adult makes 35,000 choices a day. Does that sound exhausting to you? It does to me. 35,000 choices a day. Now, I thought to myself, now, obviously, those aren't all, like, earth-moving choices. Like, everyone's not making 1,000 choices. Where are we going to live? Where are we going to work? What am I going to do for this? We're talking simple choices, right? Like, I'm going to hit my snooze this morning. I'm not going to hit my snooze this morning. I'm going to make my bed. I'm not going to make my bed. I'm going to take a shower. I'm not going to take a shower. I'm going to put on deodorant. I'm not going to put on deodorant. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm not going to brush my teeth. I'm going to put on socks. I'm not going to put on socks. I'm going to wear flip-flops today at church. I'm going to wear shoes today at church. I'm going to wear pants. I'm going to wear shorts. I'm going to wear a skirt. I'm going to wear jeans. Like, we go on and on and on. Hopefully, most of those things that I described, you answered yes to this morning. 35,000 choices. But can I tell you this? The most important choice that you can make that affects so many, maybe not thousands, but for sure hundreds of choices that you make in a day is the choice on where you are going to look. Because me making the choice to look up and choose to believe that the Lord is trustworthy, even when circumstances in my life are proving otherwise, is a choice that has great significance daily in my life. So how do we make that choice when circumstances are bringing us down? Here's the first one. I already read verses 1 through 10. It comes from these verses. Number one, look back at the stories of God's faithfulness from your past. You got to look back. 
What are the children of Israel doing in verses 1 through 10 as they're making this journey, this treacherous journey through wilderness, through mountains, through wondering if there's individuals who are waiting in the corners, waiting to rob them, whatever it may be. What are they choosing to do to keep them motivated to continue on? What are they doing? They are retelling, they're remembering, they're looking back of the stories of God's faithfulness in their lives and in the lives of others. See, here's what's important to understand. Your memory is a data bank that you use, that I use to evaluate my position, like my perspective on where I am in life right now, my position, and also in making decisions, my memory. So much of the decisions that you make are based on what you are choosing to remember. Like how you are viewing your life right now. Because of great circumstances that are happening now or difficult circumstances that are happening now. You are viewing that often based on what has happened in your past, your memory. Why? Because it's a data bank for decisions. What you're choosing to do and how you're choosing to react is based on often your memory. Now that can be a great thing. Like there's certain reasons why we celebrate dates, right? Like there's certain reasons why if you're married you celebrate your anniversary. Because it's supposed to remind you that you love your spouse. And look at where we have come up to this point. Like, that's why that date's significant. There's a reason why you celebrate birthdays. I've gotten to the point in my life where I don't celebrate it really big anymore at my birthdays. I don't want to know how old I am anymore. In my mind, I'm 23, and I'll always be 23. But, but why do we celebrate birthdays? The intent of it is not so you can get stuff, but the intent of it is so that you can remember, wow, like I have another year of living life, and look at what has happened, and look at where I am. Dates are significant. Dates represent something. Why? Because they affect how, they, how we view our present position. So it can be a great thing, but it also can be a difficult thing. It can be a bad thing. Think about some of the decisions and the way that you're viewing life right now. How is it being shaped by what you remember? Yeah, uh, I remember taking a risk for the Lord and I thought for sure that when I did that, that God was gonna work it out this way, but actually he worked it out completely different than the way that I thought. And so what are you saying? I'm never doing that again. Never. Yeah, I dated this person that said that they were a Christian because that's what I was told to do that if I married a Christian, that that would automatically mean that my marriage was gonna be amazing. That didn't happen. God's word isn't true. I'm not doing that again. If we could go on and on and on, do you see what I'm saying? It can also be a really difficult thing to overcome because we're choosing to remember the ways that God didn't work out things the way that we wanted and we're failing to remember the many, many ways, if we would just take the discipline to do so, to remember the stories that God actually did show himself faithful. Why is that so hard? 
I asked myself this this week. Why is it so hard for me to remember the ways, to remember the stories that God showed himself faithful, and why is it so easy for me to recall the ways that I am deeming he is not faithful? You ever think about that? Like if I said to you, all right, here's what I want you to do in your mind right now. So I'm saying it, so you might as well, you're gonna do it anyway. Think about the ways that God let you, or you believe that he let you down. Some of you, you're like, bam, I already got four things, Johnny, and you just said it. If I said, I want you to think about the ways that God showed himself faithful in your life, and maybe some of those ways were even no's that you wanted to be yeses, whatever it is, it takes a lot more time to think about that, doesn't it? You ever ask yourself why? I know I did. I asked myself why this week. Here's what I came up with. And these are true of me, which means they're probably, you can also identify. Here's the first one. Maybe because life has moved on from those moments of provision. You're like, yeah, that was, that was two years ago. Johnny, I, I, I need, I got a 911 today. And you're just like, life has moved on. You've moved on from those moments of provision. How about this one? The urgency of the present to you is greater than the provision of the past. Yeah, God did that, and, and I wanted him to say yes, and he said no, and yes, I'm thankful that I got a no versus a yes, and yes, I'm so thankful for that. And, but, but how does that help me today? Like the urgency of the present is so much greater than the provision that God did in the past. How about this one? This is the third one that I thought could be a reason why we struggle to remember God's faithfulness from our past. We deem the past provisions of the Lord as irrelevant to where we are in the present. You're like, yeah, yeah, Johnny, like I, I, I'm thinking about this situation, but you don't know all the ramifications that took place. Like, like there was somebody that asked me about that and then, and then me, you, you know, they approached me and, and, and there were some certain situations where, where these things came to play. There were certain variables that were at play then that aren't now and, and that, that situation though, it was awesome that God did that. No, 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 this situation is different, right? So, so what we do is we, we deem the past provisions of the Lord, like those are different than what I'm experiencing right now. And so you know that your spiritual life should this be ascent to more spiritual maturity, just like the children of Israel were ascending to worship the Lord in his temple. But you're wanting to stop. You're wanting to turn around. You're wanting to say, time out, I give up. The journey's too hard. But listen to me. At the heart of obedience is the act of remembering. Part of me looking back and reminding myself that God is trustworthy even when circumstances prove otherwise and recalling the ways that God showed up in my past, that is part of my obedience. And when you take obedience and you peel it back, if we pictured it like an onion, part of obedience at the core is, is, is remembering. Like, what motivates me to obey? Man, I have his word, and, and God tells me how to live, and he tells me how to worship him, and he tells me to be in his word, and he gives me the opportunity to know that I can pray to him, and he listens, and all those things. Where is that being informed by? It's me remembering what he said in his word. So me remembering is key to me being obedient. What is also a motivator to my obedience? Remembering his provisions that he has already accomplished in my life. 
But too often we place the characteristics of people onto God. And too often we place the characteristics of God onto people. And so it's important what we choose to remember. My staff, the staff here knows this. Ruff said, man, part of spiritual disciplines is not just reading God's word, praying, talking to the Lord, getting alone with God. Those are great spiritual disciplines. But I believe there's a spiritual discipline that's often never mentioned, and it's a spiritual discipline of celebration. I mentioned, I've mentioned this before a few times. Maybe you remember, but I'm not naive enough to think that you remember everything that I say. So I remember a few years ago, I was really struggling, and it's not that I don't struggle now, but, but I was really struggling in, in taking time to celebrate because I was getting so consumed on what was happening in the present. And I remember one year as I was thinking about, okay, as I approach into this new year, God, what, what do you want me to grow in? And this was a big one for me. And I remember, I felt like the Lord was telling me, he didn't say it audibly or anything, he said a sense that that journaling was something that I needed to do to help me in celebrating. Now listen, whether you're a guy or a girl, I have no idea. But when, some of you, when I say journaling, you're like, I hate to write. Like, I'm not about that. Listen, I'm one of the least nostalgic people that you will meet, if you know me. Like our Christmas tree is all full of ornaments that are about remembering something. Right? And, and so when we put up the Christmas tree, like, like, yeah, it's great to look at the Christmas tree, but... Honestly, I hate decorating. And those little ornaments that remember things that we did in the past don't help me at all. I still don't like to do it. So there's others in my house that are more nostalgic than me that will remain nameless. But nevertheless, I'm not the most nostalgic person. So it's not like I'm getting out my journal and I'm writing pages of notes. You know what I'm just doing? I'm like, man, I'm overwhelmed by this. I just need to write this out right now because I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm, and I'm just saying, Lord, would you show yourself faithful in this? And what I've found in my life is when I'm struggling with something that I'm writing in the present, I can flip, I do it in my iPad, I can flip back to two years ago and just start reading of the ways that I wrote some of those things. And in the present, I was like, God, I have no idea how you're gonna work that out. But I look and look back now and have a little moment of celebration reminding myself, man, God, that testifies to your faithfulness. So what I'm writing today, oh, I can struggle in believing that, yeah, that was in the past. Yeah, I can struggle in believing that the present is more urgent than the past. Yeah, I can struggle in believing that those circumstances were different, which makes them irrelevant to my present. But what it does is it helps anchor me in understanding, no, 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 God is with me every step of the way. See, some of you need to do something different than you're doing now because what you're doing now is not helping you. Look up. So I don't know if you need to have a little whiteboard that you hang on the walls. I don't know what spouse in your home does the decorating. You'd be like, that's the last thing that would ever let me put on the wall. We'll make it cutesy. I don't know what it is. Maybe you slide it underneath your bed. Whatever it is, you pull it out. I don't know what you need to do. But there is an importance in us being intentional to say, how am I going to look back at the story of God's faithfulness from my past but listen to me, in saying that, I also want to make sure you understand what I'm not saying. Because looking back at the stories of God's faithfulness from your past is also you not living in the past. Like it's not, well, let me remember the glory days. Yeah, 10 years ago, man, God was a good God. But I really haven't done anything since then. 
So hopefully the past, I can ride on the remnants of the past to get me to where I'm going. No, 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 it's not looking in the past. But that past is to give us hope forward. Here's how Eugene Peterson says this. He says, the past is not for the person of faith a restored historical site that we tour when we're on vacation. It is a field that we plow and harrow and plant and fertilize and work for a harvest. What is he saying? We look back so that you, so that I can have hope as we move forward. The children of Israel did not say, hey, we're gonna set up camp and all we're gonna do is sing songs of the past, but we're never going forward. No, no, no. The whole purpose of singing about the past, of recalling the past of God's faithfulness is so that they would continue on forward. See, let me give you the second thing and how we look up when circumstances wanna bring us down. It's from verses 11 through 18. We look forward trusting in how God's faithfulness will unfold for your future. You look forward. God, this is what you did in my past. And because this is what you've done in my past, God, I want to look forward, trusting, hard word, trusting in God's faithfulness and how it will unfold for my future. Y'all have some things right now that you're wondering, man, how's it gonna work out? How's God going to come through? How's God going to intervene? There's a hope that motivates that choice, not just to look back, but also to look forward. Let me read verses 11 through 18 quickly because we got to wrap this up. Verse 11 says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. Who swore it? The Lord. Nobody else. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, underline sure in your Bible if you have a written copy, sure oath to, from which he will not turn back. Verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So here is literally what God is saying. David, I'm gonna set up your throne forever. I'm gonna do that. But then he also tells David, which by the way is mentioned if you're curious and you like to know this stuff, 2 Samuel 7 is this promise as well that God gives to David. But verse 12, he, he gives a caveat there. He says, if your, son, if your sons keep my covenant, my testimonies, that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now here's newsflash, about to give you some bad news. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. But look at verse 13. The Lord has chosen Zion, another word for Jerusalem. He's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it, and I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvations, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Notice how many times, there's a reason why I was emphasizing I, that David has nothing to do with what the Lord is saying here. In fact, verses 12 through 18 
The second part of verse 12, all through verse 18, every one of those verbs are in the future tense. But they're based, they're rooted in that promise that says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. See, there's significance in me choosing to look forward in trusting God's faithfulness and how it will unfold for my future. And the reason why I say that's the second way that we can look up when circumstances want to bring us down is because in this situation, these people are literally making a journey thinking to themselves and having reason to think to themselves, that didn't happen. This isn't true. God isn't trustworthy. So why in the world are we making this ascent? Why in the world are we singing this song? But they sang this song because they rested in a reality that the Lord was gonna do what they couldn't. I think it's interesting that you find in verse 15 that it says, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. What does Jesus call himself in John 6? He says, I am the living bread. He who receives me will never hunger again. See, an integral part of us looking forward, believing that God is trustworthy, is rooted in understanding that the greatest evidence of him being trustworthy is not whether or not you get the job that you're hoping you'll get this week, though I hope that's true for you, and I'm not minimizing that, or whether or not you'll get the grades that you desire in school, or whether or not you'll get It's in your senior year and you're like, man, I want to get into the school and I've got a lot of anxiety about it or, or I'm needing this to come through or whatever it is in the audience that I'm speaking to this morning in this room or online. Though those are things that God wants to hear. The greatest evidence and sign that the Lord is trustworthy is Jesus Christ himself. He saved you. He can save you this morning if you haven't placed your trust in him as your Lord and Savior. He has given you a purpose and plan for your life to fulfill as it unfolds. And so often, we view the Lord and his trustworthiness based on him coming through in these things in our lives. And I don't minimize those things at all, but it's also understanding that if he doesn't, Or if he does, that his purpose in answering those things as he wills is not simply to grow you, but also to play a role in him establishing what he promised all the way back with David is that one day he will rule and reign and live on this earth forever. And he is asking you and he's asking me to trust him so that we can have the privilege of being on mission with the Lord to do what he wants to do. So when he says no to what we may have wanted, maybe we need to think to ourselves, God, maybe there's a kingdom reason that you want to teach me so that I can now have those lessons in my life so that I can be a blessing and an encouragement to someone else to continue that road and ascent to what God has called them to. See, so often we think in our minds and we just define God by the here and now and what God is saying is and I have a purpose that's greater than the here and now 
I'm going to make all things new. And if you're a child of God this morning, he gives us the opportunity to be a part of that. Not because he needs us, because he wants us to be a part of that. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, like this is what God is working towards in your life and through your life. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he dwells with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Listen to me, the circumstances that we are experiencing if they're difficult are the result of living in a broken and a sinful world. But that's the significance of Jesus because Jesus came to restore what is broken. And so for me this morning, if I am allowing circumstances to prove that the reality that God is trustworthy is not true, let me look to Jesus once again. Let me remind myself, let me look up and remember that God has restored in my life what sin has broken. And God is working all things for the good. And God is going to show himself faithful. Man, we've got to look up this morning. We've got to look up. We've got to look up and remind ourselves we are here today. So that means God's not done with us. We need to look up this morning and remind ourselves that if we're here today or watching online, that those circumstances haven't ended you, that there's hope. We need to look up, but we look up. We make that choice and we look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Man, let's stand this morning and let's sing to Jesus.